Hi, I'm Lara, founder of Hope Scarves and My Hopeful Life. My dream for this podcast is to have conversations with people facing a wide range of challenges and talk together about how we live a hopeful life. We're starting with an intentional focus on metastatic breast cancer because this is close to my heart as I live with this terminal diagnosis. Then we'll expand our conversations to talk about a wide range of topics. And together, we'll find our way as we navigate our hopeful life. This is a podcast of honest, raw, authentic conversations about how to live a hopeful life. Not in the rainbows and unicorns kind of way. Oh no, we're talking about hard stuff, cancer, loss, fear, and much more. And also the good stuff, love, laughter, connection. We're going to take time together to talk about how to find light in the darkness. I'm Lara McGregor, founder of Hope Scarves and the Hopeful Life Project. Join me as I navigate my own way of living joyfully with a terminal illness and talk to others who have also found a way to live a hopeful life. I had a lovely conversation with Tamara Price. Tamara is facing triple negative stage four metastatic breast cancer. She has endured five different treatments in the past year as her cancer has progressed throughout her body. Yet, Through the side effects, hospitalizations, and ongoing agony, she loves deeply, creating meaningful moments with her daughter and husband, and every day she tells herself, keep going, sometimes with an added word in between. (laughs) Nothing about her diagnosis is fair or easy, pink or pretty, yet her light shines so brightly as she lives a hopeful life. Let's get into this beautiful conversation. Hi, I'm Tamara, and living with a hopeful life for me means waking up every day knowing that research is saving lives. All right. Tamara, welcome to A Hopeful Life. Hi. I'm so glad to take time together today to talk and to learn more about your story. With the start of the I Hopeful Life podcast, we're focusing on four different stories with different perspectives on metastatic breast cancer. Um, The podcast will go beyond breast cancer and cancer and all different types of ways that people are living a hopeful life. But it was really important to me to start from a place that just is so significant for me, and that's metastatic breast cancer. So I wanted to start there. Um, Tell me... A little bit about, I guess maybe we start, how did we get connected through Hope Scarves? Did you receive a scarf from a friend? I received a scarf, a beautiful, vibrant, jewel-toned silk scarf with a letter. And this was all such a surprise to me. I was new to all of this. And the letter was from someone named Julie, who was also diagnosed de novo. Mm -hmm. which is diagnosed stage four, your very first diagnosis. And she was also a parent who didn't have family that could necessarily jump in and help with the parenting nearby, which is 
a similar situation for myself. And, you know, I read that letter all the time because Mm. the advice she had, I didn't understand some of it at the time. But it's one of those letters where you can go back and say, oh, yes, 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 yes. This is okay. This is okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm so glad it was a, a good fit for you. That's kind of the amazing beauty of Hope Scarves is that, you know, we don't know the intricacies of the people we're sending scarves to. And often we can pick based on a diagnosis or an age or a color request um, when our volunteers are trying to find the right scarf. But when things like that happen with like this unique very specific part of a story that resonates with a recipient. It just warms my heart, you know, that there was that connection and that sense of understanding and shared story. So I'm so glad it, it was meaningful to you and it, you got it from a friend that had sent you the hope scarf. So it was just kind of came out of the blue, right? It came out of the blue. My husband has an old friend, Carter Wood, who, uh, is very involved with Hope Scarves, I understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's a friend of yours. She so is. Carter had known about my diagnosis through my husband, and she sent it. So yes, it came out of the blue. I didn't mm-hmm. know much about my metastatic breast cancer, much less Hope Scarves at the time. And do you know that a year later, I am still working on my letter? that's okay that's okay I mean that is there's no prescriptive like timeline of how engaging with hope scarves works some people receive a scarf at the beginning of treatment some in the middle some at the end some send their story right away some write it Mm -hmm. years later you know we don't we intentionally don't put any you know, specific parameters to the process because everyone's experience with cancer is unique. And I'm just glad that we could provide this bit of support to you and um, help Carter support you as a friend as well. Um, Tell me, Tamara, about your cancer diagnosis. You were diagnosed metastatic de novo, which for those of you who aren't familiar with that term means you're initial diagnosis with me- was metastatic. And I understand you had to kind of advocate for yourself to get that diagnosis. Oh, absolutely. I had, I have always had dense breast tissue. And I've had actually in the spot where my cancer was initially found uh, years ago, there was always a problem there. And it, and it had been, you know, looked at through an ultrasound. And with this diagnosis, I was diagnosed at the end of 2019. But the year before that, I had been really advocating. I had a mammogram and it looked questionable. So they did an ultrasound and I was told it was just dense breast tissue. And I wasn't comfortable with that. And I'll tell you, trust your gut. Everyone says that. But when you're in the thick of it, you know, it's hard to know what's going on. Uh I then, a few, probably about a few months later, I um, asked for another mammogram because I just knew something was wrong. It just felt different. It was that same spot and it was getting larger. And another ultrasound happened and a radiologist looked at it. Then another one came in and did another ultrasound. And then I have two men doing the ultrasound. And I even had at that point a lymph node under my right armpit. Uh, swollen. And they said it was inflammation because at the time I was having kind of a frozen shoulder thing. I don't know. Now maybe that was related to the breast cancer and I didn't know. 
And so then I went to, you know, at my annual uh, OBGYN appointment, the nurse practitioner told me, no, don't worry about that. It has to feel hard like a piece of jewelry to be cancer. Don't worry. So these, (laughs) these are, no, these are reputable. I mean, these are respected uh, people that I was going to. However, um, I had a dermatology appointment and I was having kind of a mole removed and the surgeon, I asked him to just kind of look, I said, you know, it's on my back. Could it's irritated. Could this lymph node be related to that? And he felt it and he said, no, that's hard and that's fixed. It needs to be biopsied immediately. So I credit him uh, with being part of saving my life Mm. for now. (laughs) And, uh, that that's when I went back the third time and I said, I'm adamant about this. Something is wrong. I've now had a surgeon tell me. So they sent me to a breast specialist and, you know, end of the story. Mm. Once, once it was biopsied, uh, I knew. And at that point with that diagnosis, you were told you had breast cancer, but then a full body scan revealed that the cancer had already spread to multiple places. Where else was the cancer already spread to? Yes, absolutely. At first, they thought it was probably stage two. And then I want to say that at that point, I changed providers and went to a completely Mm -hmm. different network. And I'm now with a great oncology team. But uh, I found out that it had spread to my bone. And so after a bone scan and after a, a CT scan, and there was a little spot in my sternum which wasn't too worrying. That was looking like maybe stage three. And then, uh, no, sorry. And then I had the CT scan, the chest, abdomen, pelvis. And that's when they found out it was in my liver. And so when I got the call from my oncologist, it, it was one of those situations where at the time I couldn't do an in-person appointment. Lex was on the road. He's, um, a touring bass player. And, I told her to just go ahead and tell me, and I could hear the compassion in my oncologist's voice. I could hear her voice break. Um, I'm pretty sure she was crying, and she told me that it was in my liver, you know, and that there was no cure, but that we were going to keep working on it, keep working on it, and there was treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you are just thrust after advocating and advocating for months to try to understand what was going on. You're thrust into metastatic breast cancer. Were you familiar at all with that term uh, that there was a stage four that was terminal? Is that something that you had like understood or were you just like all of a sudden crash course in breast cancer and in an advanced breast cancer? It was an absolute crash course and still is sometimes. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I knew that it could be really rough. And I had, of course, had sleepless nights waiting for results. And mm-hmm. then, then I found out about the bone thing. And then I started reading. And then I realized what I was up against if it were stage four. But I still really did not think it was stage four. Mm-hmm. And there are no symptoms for liver mets, so, mm-hmm. liver metastasis. So. Mm. so much. I mean, in all the conversations we have, Tamara, there is a consistent thread of advocating for your health and knowing your body and trusting your gut. And so I just want to pause and like acknowledge that again here in this conversation, you share, you know, you had to really push for that. And thank God, finally, someone heard you and listened and you moved forward with a true diagnosis so that you could start 
being treated for your breast cancer. And you have metastatic breast cancer that is triple negative. And that is a unique experience (laughs) beyond being diagnosed de novo. Triple negative is also challenging because in the majority of of breast cancers are estrogen driven, which means driven by the hormone. Mm -hmm. But triple negative doesn't have any hormone receptors. And consequently also doesn't have as many targeted therapies that focus on those hormone receptors. How has that been understanding triple negative and becoming part of that community of triple negative patients that um, have to look at a variety of different treatment options? Well, at first it was very lonely. Um, Mm. And of course with triple negative, it's also aggressive. Um, Mm. You know, I don't... I am on my fifth treatment in just a little over a year. So I I know that everyone with metastatic breast cancer has to go from treatment to treatment. I It seems to me that maybe you exhaust treatments a little quicker. Sometimes if you're triple negative, I may be wrong on that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it is important to acknowledge that metastatic disease is such a huge spectrum Mm -hmm. because like for me, when I was diagnosed metastatic, I had a very large, I had an orange sized tumor in my sacrum. So I had a very big tumor, but it was very estrogen sensitive and it responded really quickly to treatments along with radiation. And then for five years, I was no evidence of disease. And so my experience, five years on the first line therapy is an exceptional responder and beca- and completely, completely different than many other people's experience. And I think I always try to tell people because I think sometimes I feel guilty that by being, you know, having this like durable stability, this is what people think metastatic breast cancer is. Mm-hmm. But there's so many different experiences. And here you are, you have in one year gone through five different treatments. So you take a treat, you take a chemotherapy or radiation or whatever treatment it is. And as long as it's working and your body can sustain it, but basically you've gone from one treatment to another because it hasn't fully knocked the cancer down to the level that it wasn't dangerous. That's exhausting, Tamara. Oh, it is exhausting. And, and what happens actually is you'll, you'll see progression and you might see stability in one area uh, the most, I have scans again on October 20th, um, a, around August, I think my bones were stable. Um, everything was pretty stable July. I mean, uh, but my liver had had progression. So, um, I started a new drug and I'll be honest, I found out about this new drug through, of course, through my oncologist, but before that, through the triple negative breast cancer community, mm. um, the thrivers. <laughs> That's amazing. And yes, absolutely. There, I knew about it before it was approved. I knew about it when it became approved. We update each other. We read about research constantly. It's the way we stay alive. Hmm. And it was approved roughly 120 days before I needed it. Wow. I know. <laughs> Uh, What if it hadn't been approved? (laughs) Right. And that's why metastatic breast cancer research is so critical. Those are the stories that 
I want to tell repeatedly that we have to keep accelerating treatment options and moving clinical trials forward because people are literally waiting for the next drug. Absolutely. To keep them alive. And it is, it's critical to keep that, the, that research going and to accelerate it with more funding and more people working in this area because you are literally hanging on waiting for that next Mm -hmm. drug. Oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you found that. Were you, you know, sometimes I feel a little bit, a little overwhelmed as a patient and needing to understand cancer and clinical trials and treatment options because I'm an English major. I'm like, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I am like, but so many metastatic patients, I feel like just become like so engaged in their therapy and understanding their disease and understanding treatment options. Does that feel empowering to you or exhausting? Uh, I would say both. Yeah. And I would say 100% empowering and 100% exhausting. Yeah. I look at research and uh, I, I just this morning, I, I couldn't sleep from some side effects. I had some insomnia last night. And in the middle of the night, I got a notification that I was approved or matched for a trial. And I'm not really matched for a trial, but I have an app. I think it's uh, NBC Connect or something like that. Yeah. I've entered yeah. all of my information in it. And so it'll let you know if a trial comes up that you may be eligible for. But sadly, when you've been on this much treatment, a lot of times you have some situations with your body that won't let you go through a clinical trial, like Mm -hmm. um, a platelet thing or this or that. Sometimes you've been on too many therapies. Um, And so trials looked a little more hopeful at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, There are trials now on drugs that are kind of paired with another drug, like a, a, a chemotherapy drug that's approved paired with an immunotherapy drug that, and they haven't been approved to use together before. So right. uh, I was actually going to start one of those this past year. And then my liver progression um, had had gotten a little worse. And so I, I did something different. I, I don't know if I've shared that I now have um, metastasis I have a couple of little nodules in my lungs that we're following, but they're not an issue right now. And uh, in my brain, I have a few tiny nodules that were found, honestly, with no symptoms very, very early. I had been um, having some blurry vision, and it was probably chemo side effects and dry eye. But my mm-hmm. oncologist is fabulous and threw me into a brain MRI immediately mm-hmm. <laughs> like the mm-hmm. day after I told her. And uh, so I did have those radiated. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. How, so. when you think about, you know, living a hopeful life, and I know you do, I know that you find joy in little ways, despite carrying this immense burden of metastatic breast cancer and the side effects of treatment and the constant doctor's appointments and scans and all the things you're managing. How do you, how do you, how do you do day by day? You're a mom. Tell me a little bit. You have a daughter. Let's talk about her for a second and and how you do this day to day. (laughs) I have a gorgeous daughter. I have a 12 year old daughter, uh, Maya, 
we uh, became a family in China six years ago and about six and a half years ago now when she was six years old. And uh, she, my husband Lex and I, uh, she is our only daughter, our only child, and the world revolves around her. (laughs) (laughs) And Maya has some a very rare medical diagnosis that also has with it some low vision and some learning disabilities and, and things. And um, our full-time job is to just uh, encourage her, enrich her, just put everything in her that she didn't necessarily have available for six years. And we love to watch her thrive. And she's just amazing. She's luminous. Um, I could go on and on for the rest Mm. of your podcast. Uh, It takes a lot of energy. Yeah. And it's not really fair to her that this has happened Mm. after everything she's been through. She doesn't need to lose her mama. So I put as much energy into parenting her and finding joy with her as I can. There are days, like the last few days, I've been in bed a lot. But I knew that today, day six, after my uh, Nulasta injection, which causes some bone pain and things, but it's only to build white blood cells. I knew that today was day six after the injection. I knew I would feel great today. Um, and so I was up and at him trying to wake her up, bounce on the bed. Mm. We, <laughs> um, I took her for a hike yesterday and um, I just named everything I could think of on the greenway that I knew the name of. <laughs> and, oh. Yeah, I love her. And so we do lots of dance parties. Um just everything. I don't know. We just, we, I, I always tell her the truth and it angers her. Um, but she has to know the truth. Mm. And, um, yeah, so we create joy. We screened in our back porch, which was a big deal. Um, I did a, a summer thing where I called it camp priceless and I basically made our home a summer camp And we had fun plans for the whole week. And we also did um, a cabin chat every night to talk talk about what worked and didn't work. And we completely stole that idea from Kemp Kesem, which is a camp that she attends for children who are affected by a parent with cancer. Mm -hmm. And what I did was basically set up my daughter and my husband for what worked and didn't work when you kind of have a hard day or have something hard to face? Mm-hmm. What what centers you? What grounds you? What activity? Mm-hmm. So that was my little experiment with them. And we found so much joy just that week, just oh. blocking everyone out. So. Oh my gosh. We try to keep it going. You know, there's, there's a piece, I think that's really important as a mom, where you just plant those little seeds. Like you plant that seed, like for her, to have that skill to reflect on what worked and didn't work. And you know that that's in there Mm -hmm. and you don't know what the future holds, but if you just keep planting those seeds with your baby and build those, you know, those building blocks of resiliency, I know that bring, when I see my kids showing resiliency, it brings me peace knowing I, I, I may this is so hard. This is so hard to say, but like we may be the cause of one of their single most deepest pains Mm -hmm. in this diagnosis and whatever the future holds for us with this diagnosis. And if they lose us, so how then when we're with them, do we 
try to build up that resiliency and just plant that love for them so deep in their heart that it's never, ever gone. Even if they can't hold us, that we've planted that love so deep in them that they know how much we love them. And I see that in that, in that, in planning that camp for her. Yes. I, and, and I do keep that at the forefront of my mind every day. I it's, and you get it, you understand Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is why this connecting with the community, like any metastatic breast cancer community, but especially for me, triple negative, Mm -hmm. you know, I have other friends who have small children who were in the same boat as me stage four with actually a lot of metastasis and are really worried and, and we support each other and um, just building resilience every day while also just loving her, just loving her and squeezing her tight and just holding her. I try to make sure that I'm smiling at her no matter how badly I feel. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there every, every night when I'm after chemo for a few days, I'll tell my husband and my, uh, Mommy has to go to bed. I have to lay down with no one talking to me and, I'm, and the door shut. <laughs> and that lasts about 20 seconds on average. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had a friend um, who, uh, a friend through Gilda's Club who sadly uh, we lost this last month. But she always told me, I would say, you know, Maya drags me out of bed and I can't rest and it breaks my heart and it just kills me. It it terrifies her that I'm in bed resting. Mm. And she said, eventually she will come to you in bed and she'll be okay. And she'll come in there and play and bring the computer and and she'll talk and it will be okay. And she was right. Mm. Yeah, she was right. So so Maya gets it now. She shouldn't have to get it. She shouldn't have to come to me in bed until I feel better. Um. But she does. And I think that builds resilience. Like, she does. Yeah. And that love, you know, I think is sometimes we put that pressure on ourselves as moms. Like, I need to get up. I need to be doing <laughs> the things. But it, that love is there regardless. It's so much deeper than being on time to soccer practice or, you know, make remembering the things that are supposed to happen for school. Like the things that fall through the cracks because we've got a lot of other things on our minds. Um, there's also this really obviously important and deep relationship that is constantly evolving with our spouses as we face metastatic breast cancer. And um, you've mentioned Lex a couple times. Um, Mm -hmm. He's an artist. I understand um, Mm -hmm. a very talented bass bass player. Um, I was reading in your blog. I was just so touched by a post you wrote about your relationship with him and how hard it is um, to navigate this, but how special your relationship is and how, how grateful you are for him as, as your caregiver. Can I read just a line and let's talk about that relationship for a second. Okay. Um, you say we are letting ourselves be vulnerable and giving ourselves grace as new caregiving needs arise. And with the ever new and gentle ways, Lex must care for me. As anyone who's been in this position can tell you, the transition is hard. It's painful, and there's no one to vent to except each other. But gradually, the layers do peel away, and what you have at the core is just that love, that gentleness, those soft hearts. And it is through those eyes that we look at one another now. We have the best conversations. We have the best cuddles. We have the most fun. We are in a very gentle phase right now in our family, and it is so healing. Oh. That just hit me because it is hard 
to go through this with your spouse. I can I can only speak for myself. I'm not sure if this resonates with you, but like I am the rawest and most vulnerable and saddest and maddest with my husband. Like he sees me, like he's always like, can I get some of that inspirational Lara up in here? Like, <laughs> I'm like, no, today I am so frustrated and I'm so sorry and I'm so frustrated. And then I can be like, all oh, like inspirational on Instagram, you know, but um, <laughs> so they, see us, <laughs> they see us at the rawest most hurt and and we're our we're most vulnerable with them and you have had such physical challenges and side effects through this how has that been for you that 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 evolution in that relationship and in finding that that peeling away all all the hurt and the pain and the frustration and the overwhelmingness to find that love oh well sometimes you have to have humor um we we didn't have humor with this for a long time um, one tiny example I can give is that no matter how angry I am and frustrated at cancer and just hateful, <laughs> there are times when I can really unload on Lex, mm-hmm. but, but then I'll squat down to get something out of the dryer and I can't get up <laughs> <laughs> and we'll just look at each other and he'll come over and hold his arms out and pick me up. And so that is our life. Uh, mm-hmm. And and he doesn't have anyone to vent to either. Mm-hmm. And so he has to vent to me. You know, we didn't ask for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unfair. And there's nothing fair about it. And it it's not going to end. Although we're very hopeful, you know. And I, I still hope to get to a point of NED, no evidence of disease. And so mm-hmm. I, I do want to say that. Yes. But we, we also have to be realistic. Um, and so... When we can laugh, it helps. But yes, we vent to each other constantly. And the way to peel away the layers is just to really say what's on your mind, no matter how afraid you are and how angry you are. And it brings you together. And then once again, you're a team, us against the world. And Mm -hmm. and that's kind of where you have to, you know, you have to recenter and make sure you're there again. Mm -hmm. That's, That's the best place to be. I think what's hard is that sometimes the people who love us want to just fix it. They just mm-hmm. want to take it away and they want to fix it. And, and sometimes with metastatic breast cancer, there's not a there's not a quick fix. There's not an answer. It's just pushing through. And that, I can imagine, is so different from early stage breast cancer diagnosis where you have a plan and you have a set number of treatments and then you have a light at the end of the tunnel and you, you know, have like, a, it's kind of like countdown to Christmas. You take the, you know, you the little checks and then you're done and then it's over and then you move on. That is not the reality of metastatic breast cancer. You, mm-hmm. It's treatments until the treatments stop working and then it's another treatment and then there's the side effects from the treatments and then there's, so it's a constant, it's not able to be fixed. And I think that that's really hard for patients but it's also really hard for the people who love us. Oh, it is. It's so hard. And I I do I did want to recognize him when I wrote that and I I could never recognize him enough. I could mm-hmm. never thank him enough. Um and you know because of covid he's the tours that he was booked for are canceled. I don't know what I would do without him. And I'm glad he's home, you know, and I'm glad he can work, you know, playing music on sessions and records and stuff like that uh while he's home but um you know he lost a lot of work and then he ended up with more work taking care of me mm. and and Maya <laughs> uh, 
so much of it is just, it's just unfair. I think the world, you know, the world is not fair. And I think when you get a, any cancer diagnosis, not just metastatic, I think the first thing I hear people say, and it was true for me, is that that is the moment when you really learn the world is not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you're at peace with that, like you said, you have to push through, you know, the, our triple negative group, we say, keep going, just keep going, because mm-hmm. some days that's hard. Mm-hmm. And so you just have to keep going. Right. And we're not, it's not about waiting for the uncertainty to pass or, <laughs> no. you know, it's about making peace with the uncertainty and exactly. not, you know, like aiming for the light at the end of the tunnel. You got to go f- grab the light and bring it into the tunnel. Yes. <laughs> and, you have to make your own joy. Make your own joy and make your own light. And you do that. And I mean, in so many ways and the creative ways that you have built this beautiful little cocoon for your sweet family of three and, mm-hmm. and found that joy in the midst of such heartache. I mean, you've been hospitalized, you've had so many challenges physically, and then yet you continue to just bring that, that joy and create that light and love for your family. It's, it's, uh, it's hard. Um, but it's what we do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And you know, it brings you joy too to, to see your family smile and, and, uh, just to feel that love. And you said cocoon. Yes. Sometimes we feel like it's a compound because we haven't even been to a grocery store since March. But I, like you said, I've been hospitalized and it, and it was for a pretty serious infection that um, um, I'm pretty immunocompromised. And uh, I did have MRSA septicemia and um, it, it was a pretty serious mm-hmm. case that, that, you know, was sobering uh, mm-hmm. and I made it out of it. Um Yes. And I was getting brain radiation that was already scheduled. So I was actually wheeled to, <laughs> to radiation while I was in the hospital. Uh, septic. But it, it all worked out. You know, it all worked out. And I'm on the other side of it. It made my daughter, it broke her heart and terrified her and made her more resilient. And it mm-hmm. brought us closer. And, and you, you know, keep going. You keep going. <laughs> you just keep going. Oh. Well, I think it's, I think your story, Tamara, is so important to share as part of this series because there's such, like I said, such this wide range of experiences with metastatic breast cancer. And yours is one that from the start has been challenge after challenge after challenge and that you've continued to to keep going through that. And I want to just acknowledge your bravery and your bright light to be able to face this day in and day out with, and it's not because, it's not because things are going great. It's because you're finding, you're bringing that light into the darkness sometimes. And that's just so powerful. (laughs) Don't make me cry on your podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Crying's okay. But, you know, I need to acknowledge your light as well, because had I not found you through Hope Scarves and seen the inspiration and see how you handle it and the ups and downs of progression, uh, I know you had a, a a scary progression not that long ago, and I just cried reading about it. I mean, we're moms, you know, no. uh, no. but you kept going. <laughs> we do. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah, been going. Oh my gosh, I'm so, I'm so glad to just share this conversation together today and to listen to your perseverance and your story of living each day 
with hope in the face of metastatic breast cancer. And um, thank you. Thank you for sharing with such vulnerability and honesty today. I think that your words are going to touch a lot of people. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It means the world. I have a little lightning round. Oh, boy. <laughs> which is super fun and not nearly as heavy and, and weighty as our overall conversation, which <laughs> I have also loved. But sometimes it's like you said, you just have to laugh. And so I'm going to ask you um, just five questions, and I just want you to fill in the blank. Um, are you ready? I think so. Hope is? Eternal. Mm. We know. Let me start over with that one. <laughs> that was very Southern. We know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Nashville. <laughs> okay. Um, we know a hopeful life is not just realized in the perfect happy moments, but also in the struggle. When you are in one of those hard moments, what gets you through? Um, the hard moments. What gets me through? Um, holding my family close. Holding my daughter. Uh, oh, it's one word. Do I just fill in? No, <laughs> you can. You can. No, no, no. The thing, that, the thing that gets me through is just holding my two humans tight and um, quiet, and just returning to center. Indeed. <laughs> Besides your family, faith, and phone, what is something <laughs> you can't live without? Uh, my husband's sourdough bread. Ooh. Oh, okay. Was he like, does, did he cook sourdough dough bread before this quarantine? Or is he one of these people that like has turned into the, a, a bread baker? He turned into it at, when everyone else stopped, I think. <laughs> um, I just kept saying, I think this, the precision needed with this, I, I think this is something that would appeal to you. <sighs> and now he's, um, over the top. It's mm. it's very scientific. There are notebooks. He doesn't share any of his information with anyone else. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And he uh the grains he uses in the in the breads he comes up with are absolutely amazing. Oh. And you get to benefit. <laughs> a little a little too much. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a huge bread fan. I'm not sure if there's too much homemade bread. I think that's amazing. Um Okay. An ordinary moment in your life that is filled with hope. An ordinary moment in my life that is filled with hope. Um, when I can get up like I did this morning, like a normal person, and just have my coffee and take a shower and put on clothes <laughs> that aren't sweatpants or pajamas because my skin's not hurting that day or my bones. Uh, today is that day. Um, it's a perfect day to talk to you. Uh, I remember that there's hope yeah. that you just have to keep going. Those days come to you. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So how many people are like not grateful for getting up and being able to take a shower and put on clothes? Like, like, <laughs> like, like, like let's like ground ourselves in the, how important that little ordinary moments are like getting up and having the strength to take a shower and put on clothes like a normal person and like that you could do that today. And I'm, I am grateful that you could do that. And, and I hope others will like when they're in the shower, just like pause and be like, okay, this is a good thing. I can do this. Yeah, I never knew. <laughs> I never I knew. <laughs> I never knew I should be grateful for showers. Absolutely. I mean, 
it's the little things. It is. Okay. Some people call it a bucket list. I call it a wonder list. What is on your wonder list that will make your hopeful life complete? On my list, and of course, my list was pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, on my list were taking my daughter, Lex and I taking Maya to all the places that she wants to see. And I want her to see these places with me. And I want to see them through her eyes. She wants to see New York. She wants to go to Chicago. And she wants to go to Austin, Texas. These are where she wants to go. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't have a, you know, it's not, it's not extravagant. Um, can't do that right now. And mm-hmm. uh, those are on my list, but uh, that's why we reframed things and made camp priceless. So if COVID doesn't go away, then um, it will continue to make home the most soothing, happy, joyful place ever. And mm-hmm. that might be my list. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we have to do a lot of reframing right now, don't we? Oh, yes. Well, oh, well, Tamara, you are an inspiration. The way that you have kept going and created joy and love in your cocoon or your <laughs> compound um, <laughs> for your family, despite of the huge challenges that you have faced with metastatic breast cancer, you truly are living a hopeful life. Thank you. You're a great inspiration. Thank you for your time this morning. I've loved talking with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our stories. I hope you take away something you can apply to your hopeful life. Help keep the hopeful life momentum going by sharing our podcast and take a minute to rate and write a review. If you'd like to learn more, check out our websites, myhopefullife.org and hopescarves.org.